Hey everybody, it's been a while since we've posted a Fresno's Best podcast, in part because uh, we've been indoors like the rest of you, um, or for those lucky enough to stay indoors. Um, actually, my uh, wife is a healthcare worker and she's had to continue to go to work, and I know there's lots of people out there that have had to continue to go to work as well, and uh, we really appreciate those people uh, that are working really on the front lines to serve the rest of us that have been at home. But nonetheless, I have been at home and we haven't been able to uh, record a podcast in part because I think that the best conversations take place in person. And I was really hesitant to record a podcast, uh, through zoom or something. But, uh, as this pandemic carried on, I decided that, uh, I should just, uh, start, recording remotely because uh, there's lots of people I want to interview. And so um, I'm very excited. Uh, today we have Danielle Bergstrom, who is the uh, kind of director and operator of the Fresno Land uh, Media Lab, which re- recently developed a partnership uh, with the Fresno Bee. Uh, we talk about all things urban and regional planning, uh kind of the history of cities and how cities operate, uh, political movements, a whole bunch of things. Um, it was a really great conversation. I know you're going to love this podcast. Oh, and one more thing before we start this podcast that I almost forgot. Um, I'm doing this podcast solo. Uh, the normal person that interviews with me, Amy, um, had some other commitments that conflicted with this. And so uh, this is unusual that I will be interviewing someone by myself. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that when you only hear me and Danielle talking. All right, let's go meet Danielle. Um, So we always start this uh, Fresno's Best podcast in the same place. And given our deprivations for the past two and a half months, I I know that there's some things you're probably missing that you love to eat in Fresno. So where does, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Ooh, um, okay. I'm going to name a few spots off the top of my head. Um, Central Fish, I go there for um, the tempura noodle soup. I really miss that. The mm-hmm. restaurant within Central Fish closed. Um, and even they have an online ordering app, but just, it's not the same to order really noodle isn't. soup. It's, it's just, it's never the same. Um, of course, I miss Annex Kitchen, a good meal there. Yeah. Um, I miss, uh, I live in the Fresno High neighborhood, and so, and I have little kids, so we would always go to Gazebo Gardens on the weekends, and Taco Barbecue is like my go-to truck, and we just haven't been able to get there. Um, and then just going to get a good cocktail. I, lo- I love going to the Modernist for cocktails. I love going to the limelight sometimes. I love, um, I'm trying to think of other spots downtown that I um, have hit up in the past. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's just a nice experience that you just don't get right now. Yeah. So, and it's, well, and it's, coffee, that's one last place I'm okay. obsessed with. I probably went there more in the last six months than any other place and they have the takeout window which is great but because i'm not in the daily routine of going downtown to work it's just different we try to order our beans online but it's tough it's tough and we put a we put a an unreasonable expectation on restaurants for them to like you know reinvent the laws of thermodynamics where you can get your food 
drive home and it's still to be the same thing it was when you got it. You know, like I, the other day I ordered, and I love this place, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but I ordered um, breakfast from Benediction. And uh, and by the time I got home, you know, my eggs Benedict, it was a little, it was a little cold on top. And so I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just gonna throw it in the oven. Um, but sure enough, you throw it in the oven, then you, then you cook your yolk. And it's just not the same if you cook your yolk. So. We did the same experience with ramen. We got ramen from a shop downtown. Great place. I've always enjoyed and loved our ramen when we go there. But bringing it home and you have like the noodles in one container and then, you know, the toppings in another and just putting it all together. It's just not, it's not a similar experience at home. Yes. I mean, we're, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, religious things, but there's this concept um, in some religions of a tithe and you know where you give 10 percent of your income um and so i've looked at restaurants as charity right now more than you know more than just expecting them to produce what they normally produce and so i yeah i mean it's it is tough you know some of the restaurants that i like want to order from are probably not the restaurants that need my help you know i I live pretty close to heirloom um, uh which is you know that place is is going to be fine. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. They're not going to have any problems, but you know, it's those little places downtown or those places uh, way on the West side that I'm just like, I don't want to drive over there and they're smaller. So. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I was talking to, um, to Morgan Doizaki who owns his family's own central fish for a couple of decades. And, and he was telling me, you know, they've developed an app, and they've had some success with DoorDash. And, and he was saying, you know, if you're able to make that pivot to DoorDash, to have an app, to whatever, he, he said a, a lot of businesses, especially, you know, he's, he does wholesale fish to a lot of the sushi restaurants in Fresno. And yeah. so he was saying a lot of the sushi restaurants are actually doing quite well. Interesting. People want sushi in a pandemic. But in Chinatown, um, there's also a lot of, you know, mom and pop places. Um, there's Kukas, which is like a really old school Mexican joint where people have gone to get like some of the best menudo in Fresno for decades. And they just flat out shut down because the clientele that they have, like, it's kind of like the rhythms, you know, people have a rhythm of going to a certain place for breakfast, you know. Yeah. to have a breakfast meeting. I always do my breakfast meetings in um, Southeast Fresno okay. at um, Castillo's on Ventura. That's just like, if I'm going to have a breakfast meeting, it's always going to be there. And when you're out of that rhythm, it's just hard to, yeah, hard to break out of it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I mean, I enjoy cooking, but yeah. come on, come Me on. Too. You know, it's just too much. You know, when you're, when, <laughs> I, I mean, it got to the point the other night, we had just like a bunch of carrots and I was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with all these carrots? I'm um, afraid to, to to say what I ate today because it's super embarrassing, um, but it was not pretty. <laughs> okay. well, you know, I mean, we do what we have to do to survive. Yeah. Right? Left alone, I'm not, I don't have my best devices. My my kids were not in my house today so I could get some work done, but it's well, not good. good for you to have some, you know, because it's, it's been, it's been a challenge for people with children and I don't have kids. And so I, people kind of, I kind of, when I talk to people, I'm careful about what I say because, you know, in some sense, I'm kind of in Palm Springs, you know, a little bit where I'm just kind of, it's peace and quiet. I get to meditate. I get to do whatever I want. 
Um, yeah. I know entertaining children. Uh, and, and the teach, you know, teachers, I'm a, I'm a teacher and, you know, I, I understand dealing with kids is difficult because I do it all day. I get it. Right. Um, and so I try to try to keep that to myself. So, um, how, how have you navigated that so far? Uh, it, it's definitely been challenging, but, um, challenging in some ways, um, in the in the beginning of the pandemic so my husband also works in education he's a he's a, a academic coach at a local school here and um so we kind of set up a shift schedule right away so i had like earlier in the day he had later in the day we really tried not to work after our kids went down because otherwise they'll just burn out if you're doing right post 8 p.m shift every night right. and i really really try not to work weekends i just for my mental health it's really sure. important yeah. but that was i mean we were netting like 25 hours a week and for my job for my husband's job it just was untenable so um we expanded our quarantine circle to include my husband's parents a few weeks ago yeah and that was huge so now now i have help a few days a week and that's just that's i feel very privileged and i know a lot of people don't have that option so yeah so are you f originally from Fresno or are you from somewhere else? I am from um, Dinuba, Kingsburg area. Oh, okay. I grew up on a farm. My dad was a farmer. Um, yeah, so I grew up up there, went to country schools and went to high school in Reedley and then um, left the valley as, you know, so many of us do and say, I'm never coming back. And I went to Cal Poly, um, so I didn't get that far away. But my now husband, we started dating in the middle of college and he was at Fresno State. And um, so when we got married after we graduated, it was like, I guess I'm moving back to the Valley because he's very close to his family. Yeah. So, so jumping ahead to your schooling, um, I noticed, so this is kind of, an, I, I'm not psychoanalyzing you, but I'm looking at your the choices of your uh, areas. And so... I guess my first question is, you know, in, at Cal Poly, you studied biology, correct? Yes. And then you went to Cornell and did regional planning? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I guess my first question is, um, do you think there's something connected there in that um, oftentimes cities are compared to ecosystems or something like a cell, right? And do totally. you... Is that is that something you saw connecting your, your it work? Not, it was not strategic at the time. Um, at the time, it was really, I started out as pre-med um, at Cal Poly, which biology is the pre-med major there. And um, by the time I realized I didn't want to become a doctor, uh, at Cal Poly, it's uh, like a lot of the schools in the... Um, CSU and poly and UC system, it's really hard to change your major it without is. adding extra years to your education. Right. Right. So I just kept the major. Yeah. And, so, uh, yeah. Let me reframe then. Okay. Do you think studying biology changed the way you look at urban planning? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's 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 a helpful it's a helpful framework to understand because what I ended up doing once I realized I didn't actually want to be a doctor was I, I focused on ecology and sustainable environments and, and oh, there you go. Look at that. Right. Okay. All right. So, yeah. so our cities, our cities, but like how to connect it. Right. Our cities ecosystems. Is that right? 
Absolutely they are. Yeah. And, and there's a lot we can learn from the natural worlds about order and systems and how we all communicate. So yes, there's tons of parallels, but I think at the time it wasn't very wasn't cognizant. Okay. Um, no. what, what are the limitations of looking at cities like that? You know, because sometimes people take metaphors and then they take them to the extreme, right? Cities are an ecosystem and they keep everything in balance and we need to have each of these things connected. Like I just, you know, it's very sweet. I just watched, um, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, it's a documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. And it's about this like biodynamic farm outside of, Los, outside of Ventura County that Oprah goes to and like the ducks eat the snails and the the grass helps uh, re add nitrogen to the soil and everything works together. And obviously cities are more complicated. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking, how far does that metaphor go in your um, mind? I think that like thing that has become evident to me over time that complicates the metaphor quite a bit is that um, so much of city building and the way that we build cities, build infrastructure to support cities and the, and the people in them and the businesses in them is in service of private enterprise. Mm -hmm. And that is the invisible hand shaping and, and, and like, you know, if, if cities are an ecosystem, we're kind of actually just someone's Lego city creation. Mm -hmm. And there's still a master builder yeah. at play. In, in, in a way that you just don't have, obviously, in the natural ecosystem. Right. So, and we forget that. Right. So I guess connected to that, you know, because there, there's this concept of a healthy city, you know, mm -hmm. a city that is functional. Um, and do you think that's, is that a useful concept to approach in looking at a city, it being healthy? Because, um, you know, I mean, Fresno gets... Fresno, we, I've talked about this, you know, I've gotten in trouble for talking about this, but um, Fresno has a certain reputation and a lot of it's warranted. Um, but can a city be healthy, I guess? I mean, I, all cities have problems. All cities have problems. Um, I think, and a lot of people have um, created ways of, of articulating the health of a city. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, it's probably just too, in my mind, it's probably too basic. Be, okay. Like, is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Because every city has good parts and bad parts and, um, they're just complex. Yeah. So what makes, what makes it different when you look at a city as an urban planner than a, an average person looking at a city? Um, I think because of my training, I just see how things interrelate so a lot quicker. Okay. And um, let me give you an example. So um, when I see a road being built or widened, I, I think a, a normal person would probably be like, oh, yay, you know, we're, we're alleviating traffic, we're providing a space for cars to go faster, this is an accessible, it, we're creating accessibility. And I think, um, you know, the technical term that we use in the planning world is induced demand. That's like immediately goes off in my head. Basically meaning that we are enabling 
um, a new way of people to get to somewhere that we didn't have before. And what that means is that we're allowing the possibility of even more cars to be on the road. Um, there's something to be said for the cities that have really good transit systems, have really good transit systems for a lot of reasons, but one of them being that it is easier to use transit, relatively speaking, than to use a car, or it's not that much of a difference between how fast it is or convenient it is to take a car versus to take a bus. And in Fresno, our differential between your transit experience and your car experience is just so wide. So, so, so wide. And every time we build a road, we are widening that gap. So I, I think that's probably something that I see. And, and um, I would say another thing is because, again, of, of the training that we have, and you know, I've tried to spend a lot of my planning training and really understanding the history of cities and how cities are built and the history of power and um, race and class and shaping our cities. Um, I think that at my best, um, you know, you're always looking at how investment decisions are being made, um, where infrastructure is going, where businesses are locating always with a sense of who was that for, who was this designed for, and who was this not designed for. I see. So you're, you're kind of seeing like an ideology at work in a lot of these decisions, whereas people just see, you know, it just happens. It just right. Happens. So some it never just happens. happens. Never just happens. Never, never, never. There's always years and years and years of planning in the works for so much of what makes our cities our cities, and um, yeah, and it's it's not spontaneous. It's so, but it's different, right? Like when you so because you you. Um, we're in Oakland and you did work in New York, right? Mm -hmm. so those cities, the, you know, the complexity is different than in somewhere like Fresno where it's a lot of sprawl and right. malls and things. Um, right. How does looking at a place like Fresno compare, you know, to a larger kind of really dense city that has issues because of that density? Um, the issues are really different here, right? Um, because we don't have, we have, so because of the sprawl that we, what that means is that, um, I, I t the, the way I look at suburban sprawl is this way. It's not bad in and of itself to have a sprawling land use pattern. I mean, there's better land use patterns, you know, there's more efficient ways of building cities, more compact ways, but that in and of itself is, in my view, not the worst thing in the world. I might be a bad urbanist for saying that. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's all about what your view of the purpose is, right? I mean, if the purpose is um, to be, you know, if you're environmentally minded, you want to might want to create density, so you're not yeah taking, using so much land. If your if your view is that everyone should have their own lawn um, and their own little castle, then you know, I just you know, it's, it's all these competing ideologies and they're, they're maybe, they're maybe not made explicit all the time. I don't know. They're not. No. And it's, and it's the thing that I think is, is, um, that, that I get frustrated in particular at is that we subsidize certain ways of living over others. 
-hmm. we subsidize um, subdivisions on the periphery of our city to the expense of everyone else. And, and so when, you know, in my neighborhood, when a grocery store that has been there for 30 years shuts down, that's, that's not spontaneous at all. And of course, no one like evilly plans like, ah, we're going to close this grocery store. But in a region of our size, there's only so many grocery stores that the, you know, private market will say can operate with a population of that size with an income of that level. And so when a new neighborhood pops up and that new neighborhood serves a more affluent population, um, a new grocery store will, you know, want to locate near that population because they can, there's money to be made there. What yeah. happens? Well, if we open a store there, then we probably can't also continue um, operating our store here in a neighborhood where incomes maybe aren't as high. So we're going to close this one down. So the impacts, the impacts always ripple around. And that's, that's where a lot of my, I think, work will continue to focus is we're deliberately making those decisions to prioritize certain neighborhoods or, or over others. I see. So um, that kind of leads me to my next thing I want to talk about. Um, so I, for a few years, I lived in Pasadena and um, there was a lot of, uh, political fighting about uh, low-income housing. Um, there's other ways of referring to it, um, inclusionary zoning or whatever, whatever word is correct sure. for it. Um, but basically what it means is, you know, is uh, if you're going to build stuff here, you have to build some affordable housing with it, right? Yeah. And so the idea is that uh, otherwise uh, they would just build housing, you know, these developers, Lennar, whoever it is, uh, they would just build these, you know, fancy, you know, for the for the upper middle class young professional condos or whatever, um, and that would force people out basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, how how have you seen that working in terms of its effectiveness? Uh, because on the other side, you, there's some people that just say we need to get rid of all these regulations and zoning and everything and just build a shit ton of housing, uh, mm -hmm. and then that will drive the price price down because the supply will be so large. So sure. where, where, where are you on that? Uh, yeah, question? that's a great question. Um, okay, so I think a couple of things. It really depends on your goal. Inclusionary zoning is not, from, as a, from a policy perspective, if your main goal is to build as many affordable housing units as possible, it's not, it's not the right tool. In city after city, um, it's been shown to, it's, because it, it does create, a, it puts the burden on a private developer to build the housing, you don't get as many housing units as if you just, you know, use the other system, which is tax credits go to affordable housing developers to build it. And they have a, a very efficient way of, well, not very efficient, but somewhat efficient way of, of building affordable housing units that way. Okay. The reason that it's useful as a policy tool is, um, it's, it's a way to create income diversity and by de facto because we have um, a lot of uh, economic stratification by race, therefore racial and ethnic diversity as well in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a place like Fresno where you have a lot of income and racial segregation um, between the north part of the city, the south part of the city, between Clovis and Fresno, inclusionary zoning could be a way to bring, um, to combat that. Right. 
Is that? But if you want to just build affordable housing, there's a lot, a lot of other policy tools. Okay. So do you see that as a solution in some ways to address the sprawl issue? You would kind of use your zoning to, you know, like there's, a, there's this big, there's this massive uh, apartment project on Willows out by Clovis North. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, you just see that, you just see that kind of, <laughs> I mean, how sprawl works in Fresno. Uh, right. is, that, is that something that you think would, would work well uh, in terms of creating a more heterogeneous community out there or, or not? I don't know how else you do it. I mean, I think um, because of land costs, because of um, zoning, because of um, likely neighborhood opposition um, to an affordable housing developer just straight up purchasing land in a place like that and building, you know, a fully affordable housing project, inclusionary zoning is often the only way that you get the income diversity. Um, in a new neighborhood, it's just hard to do. Yeah. Other ways of getting income diversity, you know, I think some developers have tried um, building more of a mix of, of housing types within one neighborhood. And so, you know, I live in Fresno High, um, my street has, you know, I live on a quarter acre lot in like urban Fresno. That's, I think, a pretty big lot. Um, and like six houses down from me are a bunch of sixplexes. Yeah. Um, on two blocks away from me is like a 20 unit apartment complex. Yeah. So there's some, you know, we have a lot of diversity in housing types in, in my neighborhood. And because of that, that allows, you know, people who might be more established to live with people who might be just getting their, their, their start in the housing market in the same place. Well, and you know, it's, I think you're fighting what people want, which is they want to move where their, you know, their house is going to appreciate in value and they, they see apartments as like a sign of, ooh, you know, like that's, right. it's just, it's a mentality too. And it's, 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 I don't know if it's education or what it is, but. Um, it's funny. Cause like, I don't know about you, but I, before living in Fresno, I only lived in apartments. Yeah. So yep. like I didn't live in a house until I turned 30. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. I, yeah, no, I, I know I'm, I, it's, I, yeah, it, it's very context specific, but, mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about housing a little bit more and talk about, um, evictions. Um, so are you, I, I'm not too familiar on what the latest is in terms of at least, I, I know that there's been federal policies and state policies to protect uh, people from evictions right now. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the role that evictions are playing and you know what's being done to protect people? Yeah, um, you mean in in relation to the coronavirus? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, understandably, when the crisis hit um, in March, um, there was a lot of concern by a lot of renters over. Um, getting possibly evicted, especially as people were losing their job or getting their hours cut um, when we're in a, we weren't in a lockdown per se, but you know, with stay at home orders. Yeah. So um, there were a couple of actions that were taken at the state, at the local, at the federal level that ultimately 
gave some sort of blanket protection. I think the best way to say it is in California. If you, um, if you can't pay your rent and you have communicated to your landlord that your situation, and it has some connection to COVID-19, as tenuous as that may be, you know, if you can show that in any way, um, your landlord cannot move forward with the eviction process legally. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't file um, and start an eviction process in the court through the e-filing system. All it means is you can't get served oh. with the documents. And so, so people could just be waiting with their legal documents until totally. the policies are going away and then boom. Yeah. And so that's, that's been the, you know, and I've talked to a lot of legal aid attorneys who work day in and day out on this and their advice to tenants is just, if you can pay your rent, pay it. If you can even pay partial rent, pay it, pay what you can, because if you don't pay, and especially if you don't pay three or four months, I mean, what are we, we're almost three full months into this. Um, you could very well be kicked out of your, of your rent, one of your house. I mean, once the, um, once the shelter in place order is lifted from the state. So, um, yeah, it's a scary position for a lot of people. Yeah. Eviction, eviction. I mean, just in general, evictions, um, a complicated subject. So a few months ago, Matthew Desmond, who wrote the great book evicted came to Fresno. It was kind of like a, you know, Fresno library connection, uh, which, which was an awesome event. Um, but I would have been there. What's that? I wish I would have been there. I wasn't able to be there that night. Yeah. Um, it was a kind of a weird random middle of the week. Um, but in reading his book, my eyes kind of got open to the other side of the equation, which is landlords um, and their process for evicting people. And so, you know, there's understandably, just reflexively, I tend to assume and take the side of the people being evicted that kind of, you know, I just picture some landlord in some like pinstripe suit, you know, with a cigar in his mouth and just kicking the poor people out. But that's not the who landlords typically are. Um, I mean, sometimes they are, but sometimes they're people almost in a similar situation. Um, mm -hmm. so can you talk about kind of the different parties? Um, in this situation, you know, maybe the landlords and the tenants and how it's more complicated of a narrative than we assume. Yeah. I don't know if I can do this topic justice, but I will try. Um, there are there. Yeah. There's a lot of different um, types of landlords, like you said, and um, in the conversations I've talked to with, um, with there's a there's an association that represents landlords um in fresno the california apartment association okay and if you talk to them and you hear how they frame it you know um most landlords are wanting to follow the rules they're wanting to provide a safe and affordable home for their tenants um, it's a, it's a stream of income. It's a business. It's a, it's a way that they pay their own bills. Yeah. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it's their retirement, you know, they, they 
decided to put their money into real estate instead of the stock market. And, um, you know, for anyone who lived through the last two or three recessions, I can, you know, some people thought that was a better choice. And, and so this is their retirement income. Um, and then there are a lot of people for whom um, renting properties is, is just another way to exploit poor people because they can. And a lot of, and in Fresno in particular, you see a lot of slumlords. I don't know how unique we are um, as a city in that regard, except that we have a really large undocumented population. Sure. And that just creates a lot of vulnerability because people have, um, you know, a, a, a real fear of, of being ret of retribution and, and being discriminated against. And, and because of that, you know, if you look at the rents that people pay in some buildings that are questionable, maybe in terms of their, um, of the way that they're kept up, it's, it's because people don't have a lot of options. You know, if you have an eviction on your record, if you're undocumented or you're from a mixed status family, you just have a whole lot of less negotiating power. So yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, makes makes it complicated to create policy, right? You know, like, yeah. how do you create yeah. a policy that uh, doesn't just pit groups, but it works to like mediate and create solutions, you know? Um, and that's the trick. Um, so you 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 worked for our one of our former mayors, correct? Uh, I did. I worked for Ashley Swearingen, Mayor Ashley Swearingen. Um, I was her senior policy advisor for two years, three years. Okay. Well, what was that experience like? Um, it was really interesting. I I never wanted to go into politics. Um, that was never an intention of mine. But I was always. Um, I felt like after working in academia, working as a city planner, working in advocacy, which was the position I had held right before working for Ashley, I wanted to, I spent a lot of time advocating for reform at different levels of government. And I, I felt like I wanted to have the experience of being within a place where you have that decision making to better understand the choices that are at play does that if that makes sense yeah i mean you know it's it's like i don't know i've been watching a lot of west wing lately just because you know we're at home and you know it's like once you get into the office you got to make things happen and mm -hmm. it, it's always you know it's always more complicated um, yeah. the other show i've been watching and it's a guilty pleasure is billions which is i haven't watched it it's so good and it's it's so you know, it's it, it's kind of a little bit, you know, some of those TV shows can be a little bit like everything is a fight, but, you know, obviously yeah. it's not. Um, but watching them work the system, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's I, I, I can imagine politics is a totally different animal than advocacy in terms of, you know, you're hamstrung by, yo, this person, this thing, and you can got to do this thing this way or it doesn't work versus kind of being on the, being on just kind of a, a platform of just informing people and yeah things, you know so you see more clearly um the way in which our political fights are so constrained like so constrained and for silly reasons in a lot of ways what do you and, mean so constrained um there's so many uh like when you start like it's hard to have a really sincere 
and this is no shade to anyone in particular. I'm just, this is more commentary on a broader system at play. It's really hard to have a sincere dialogue and pursuit of a solution to a problem because in politics, everyone tends to be so wedded and grounded to their position and like will die at the stake for it. And I mean, when I've taken conflict resolution classes, I mean, if that's your starting point, if you are, this is my position, I'm gonna die at the stake for it, that doesn't create a lot of room for negotiation. And then because there are power dynamics, you know, when you are an elected official or a staff for an elected official, you obviously have a lot of power. So you're not in like a good, negotiations don't always happen in good faith because someone has the upper hand in the negotiation. Yeah. And, um, and then because, you know, of the influence of money in politics, developers are often, I mean, they're obviously huge contributors to a lot of campaigns. And so whenever we would, um, try to put forward, you know, solutions to some of our challenges around urban sprawl, they would just get, I mean, this is dead on arrival. This will never work in Fresno um, because it hurts the bottom line of suburban developers. Mm -hmm. And, and so that like, you couldn't even have the conversation. Um, and those, those types of things are really frustrating to me because I, I always felt like, well, if we were really genuine about solving this problem of affordable housing or how we, how can we invest in downtown without gentrifying it? Or how can we, you know, clean our air by stopping a suburban sprawl? If we approach those issues in a more genuine way, we would have a broader set of solutions to choose from. And that just never was the case. Yeah. It, it's kind of the Mitch McConnell syndrome, you know, it's the, uh, I'm just not going to do anything, you know, and that, that, that kind of goes back to the, you know, it's, we reward people for sticking to a position, you know, yeah. as opposed to, you know, you know, it's, it's this concept of the pie, right? You know, like, you know, in any negotiation, there's a pie that you're trying to split. And mm -hmm. um, if you're, if you believe you already have the whole pie, um, and that's the whole pie is just staying in office, you know, and your constituents are going to reward you for just being loud and, you know, having a protest about, about coming outside during the pandemic or whatever, if that's how you're going to be rewarded, um, then, 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 then there's nothing, there's no reason to participate in the process. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And I, and like, because you get, so many politicians get elected on an ideology. I'm going to accomplish X policy. I'm going to accomplish Y, or I generally want to serve these people. When you are confronted with, you know, as it is inevitable, you can't shift or pivot the, the space. I mean, we just haven't created a political culture that allows politicians and to, to kind of acknowledge, like, I really fought hard for this. And I now see that that was a wrong step and I want to go this way completely in a 180 direction. And, and this is not to say that Ashley didn't make hard decisions. She absolutely did. She absolutely changed her position on some things. Um, but I think I'm speaking more to the, to, to the broader culture and that it's really hard. It's, and that's, I would say more uncommon than common. So, yeah. so um, one of the big projects lately, um, and this is just what I know since I've lived here, which is um, trying to remake the downtown into something 
uh, exciting. Um, and it's interesting because we're, you know, we're quickly approaching um, the 50, well, no, 60 year mark of the, the Fulton Mall. Um, and, you know, I, so I, I, I kind of go back and forth because I, I, I went to college in San Francisco and I, I, I'm a history person and I did a lot of work for my senior thesis on looking at uh, urban revitalization um, oh. in downtown San Francisco um, and uh, particularly around the Moscone Center. Um, and one of the you big read Chester happened, Hartman's books? Oh, yes. I live by his books. Yeah. Uh, he's wonderful. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, in order to build the Moscone Center, they had to uh, take down this large, uh, uh, I forget what they're called. You see them on Craigslist when you're looking for a house. It's ever just those high frequency hotels or something. So uh -huh. there was a high frequency hotel um, that was serving, that had wounded veterans as its tenants, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, had to evict them all and tear the building down in order to put the Moscone Center in. And so literally the developer hired thugs to go into the building and literally pull the people out of the building onto the street. And I remember, I remember and Chester Hartman actually has a section in his book about this. Um, he talks about these guys literally kicking down doors of people in wheelchairs. Um, and so I think that's what people picture when they think about <laughs> uh, urban, you know, gentrification and revitalization, you know, there's people that are just get run over. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I've actually had this ongoing debate uh, because I unfortunately live in North Fresno where the sprawl is, but you know, that's for different reasons. Um, and I have a friend who chose to live in downtown. And so we, we often debate whether, you know, what's the worst evil is the worst. Is it to, is it more evil? We maybe don't use the word evil. Um, is it more woke to live in a low-income neighborhood even though you're going to gentrify it or more woke to uh not gentrify the neighborhood live somewhere else and then you know be a patron of the businesses in that area and we go back and forth and i, I don't know if there's a, a solution but i want to come back to this main topic of of downtown fresno um and i i want to be a believer but i also am skeptical because i know the history of these projects and how they work um and it's complicated um, yeah. So why don't you, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Um, oh man. I know, I, I know. I spend too much time on it. Um, okay. How do I put it this way for, I, one of the reasons I got into urban planning was because of downtown Fresno and I came here as a kid and went to the old spaghetti uh, factory, which is now of course my office in a random twist of events. That's um, I know. I like would look at the building as a kid and be like, I want to work there someday. And it is literally my office. Um, and, you know, when I was a young 21 year old city planner, you know, we had like an insurgency at city hall and we're going to be the, the planners that create the plan for downtown that will finally be the way that it gets revitalized. And then I left and went to grad school and then lived on in Oakland for a while and left all that. When I came back to Fresno, in 2013, 2014, and started working for Ashley, all of the decisions around Fulton were done. And I was really conflicted about it all because, um, actually, I, yeah, I was really conflicted about it all because I didn't support the conversion personally um, from the mall. I, I, you know, 
knew enough about gentrification and how it worked in other cities that that felt inevitable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know just from the experience of being a planner that who you design your infrastructure projects for matters greatly. And so, you know, the mall before it was, is now the street, it was for not necessarily initially by design, but it had evolved to be a really important gathering place for the Latinx community and had a lot of street vendors and, you know, the shops were quinceañera shops and, um, you know, paleterias and, you know, places that were mom and pop. And yeah, the storefronts were not pretty and they weren't an urbanist stream, but it was a really culturally important place. And um, creating it as a street has definitely changed the the feel of it. And, um, you know, and I think there's some positive that has come from it. Uh, all of the fountains being restored is amazing and beautiful. And um, I hope that more investment will come to the area. And I think we just have to acknowledge that um, we also lost an important cultural gathering place for a part of our community that we don't often think of when we think of revitalization. So I think it's challenged me in terms of, I've been in the revitalization circles for forever. I got to know Craig Sharton when I was like 20 years old. I've known him for a really long time and he's been a long time friend of mine. And I think I've just changed in the way that I think about like, instead of thinking that downtown revitalization is the top priority. I mean, obviously I want a thriving downtown. I want a place that we can all be proud of as a region, but I also don't want that to come at the expense of places that are really hold an important place. Um, for cultures that have been marginalized in our past. Yeah, I mean it's 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 complicated, right? Because you're because it's it's not like you're you have a vision of what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. That's your that's a speci- often a specific person's vision, right? Um, and there's there's people already there that are doing things, um, and it, if it works for some people, I mean, who's to say that it's better to have it work? I mean, it, it, it feels, I don't know. I mean, I, I could, like you, I could go on and on about this. I, I just, yeah, it's, it just feels, there's this great book called um, Seeing Like a State. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about how uh, the government looks at the world and then creates order from it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's an amazing book. It starts with like uh how the kings of England organized uh, trees. <laughs> anyway, and the, the point of the book is that the government sees uh, the world in specific ways and then creates that system and overlay on top of things. Uh-huh. Um, the truth is, is that I, you know, downtown was functioning for that demographic that you're talking about. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. So why do we need to change it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it I think there's an idealism of like making downtown something that you want it to be. Like you just, you close your eyes and you picture like, I, I don't know, you picture some, you picture the West village or something. And then you're just like, Oh, this is what, this is what downtown should be. And these are the kinds of people that should be there. And, right. you know, and so I, I mean, I, I go to Tioga, I go, I go to all the places. Right. Um, is putting a bunch of bars downtown going to fix everything? Probably not. Um, is there something needs to be fixed? I don't know. Um, 
it is it safe downtown sometimes i i mean these are all questions that don't have clear answers um, yeah so i just for me i i trust people that talk about revitalization in a nuanced way mm -hmm. i hear people saying that they're going to fix everything it's going to get beautiful they're going to take over these buildings and make them pretty and it's going to everything's going to be better and we're going to bring so much money downtown that's when i get really afraid because yeah. those people maybe don't have their ears close to the ground on who needs things you know it's totally yeah well so for I, a long time i mean i know you haven't for for as long as i can remember the downtown debate in fresno has always been about how can we make it a comfortable place for predominantly white north fresno residents to enjoy yes. and so when i was for my first in at city hall was in 2000 and seven in 2008 and alan oxry was the mayor and the big plan th at that time was to put a um what is that um um sporting goods store that's in manteca that's anyways they were gonna put like a big like sporting goods like fit where you can buy fish gear and guns that's so um, weird. Yeah, in the middle of downtown. And they were going to, so like where Tioga is, where the Modernist is, like that's all the South Stadium District. They were going to raise all those buildings so that we could have this like big box, you know, sporting goods store. And so I'm like 21. Obviously that sporting goods store is not for me. Of course I'm white. And I have other visions of my, you know, revitalization utopia at that time in my life. Sure. And um, so we were all like, this is horrible. Like, this is a, you know, 55-year-old North Fresno white guy's dream. And it is not anyone else's. So we fought back. And, of course, the recession happened and killed the dreams anyway. Um, but, yeah. Thank God for subprime mortgages then. Jeez. <sighs> I never thought I'd say that. But, yeah, we don't need, we don't need like, a, a Duck Dynasty Emporium downtown. That's not the solution. That's it was pretty wild but that was like the popular thing at the time it was very and so I think you know where my thinking has come back to is um, revitalization I who is who is it for and why can't you know, planners have this like really long history in the urban planning field of like wanting to do great big things. Yeah. And, you know, our, you know, icon in a lot of the field is Daniel Burnham from Chicago Fair and, you know, make no small plans was his big mantra. And so when I walked through the doors of my classes in grad school, it was like literally on the door. Um, but it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's a very classist and racist way to think about planning because at the end of the day, like there's so many neighborhoods that don't have really basic services. And so, you know, there's always this theory that, well, if we big build the big back store, if we do this great big project, we'll get the tax revenue so that then we can do the, the public services that all these neighborhoods lack. And that just never happens. So I've been, you know, had to go through a lot of, experiences i think to really internalize that concept a lot better than i used to but i think i hope that's the direction we can continue to go yeah it's kind of like the um you know, the idea of like micro revolutions as opposed to these like large you know i mean the the big plans 
you know, you know, my, my brain immediately goes to Robert Moses when I think about big plans totally. and like, totally. you know, we, <laughs> that's not a legacy anybody wants. Um, no. so I, yeah, I, it's, it's a challenge. And I think, I, I think the solution is just uh, accepting the nuance, being explicit about it, and then talking to the people that live there already. Right. Not assuming that other people need, you know, it's, it's, it's the people living there. It's their community, you know, right. and, um, before you put Dick's sporting goods or something. Uh, yeah. I, I think talking to the people is the solution. Um, yeah. let's, you know, we're, we're coming on an hour, so let's, let's kind of jump to Fresno land. So what is Fresno land? Uh, why did you start it? And why do we need, we've got ABC 30. Why do we need Fresno land? Um, Oh, these are fun questions. Okay, so Fresno Land is a policy and media lab. And what does that mean? It means that we are a mashup between um, policy research on local urban issues that we have in the Fresno region, but partnering with journalists and storytellers to disseminate that research in accessible forms, not necessarily white papers. No offense to white papers, I did one last year. They play a really important role, but um, when I think about a lot of the challenges that we have in Fresno, um, I wanna think about what's the best way to get this information to as many people as possible um, who are really impacted by these decisions so that they can be a part of that process. So that was why I started Fresno Land and um, created this partnership with the B, which we launched earlier this year. So most of our work will be published in partnership with the B. And um, the nice thing about this partnership with the B is that, and to answer your question about ABC 30, and you know, there's a lot of journalists there that that do great work. And they I have just a stand-in. They were just a stand-in. I was just, you know. I know, no, 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 they're great. A, like, a friend of mine who just joined the team why, there. Why do we need more than that? Yeah, it's it's, it's this, um, a typical journalist is their pressures are so intense to constantly be chasing the stories that um, will get a large audience, which will get ad revenue, which will help keep the, the business going. I mean, ABC 30, Fresno B, they're all for-profit ventures that rely on advertising money and subscription. Well, not ABC 30, but the Fresno Beat and subscriptions to keep their, their base going. And, and that, um, that is a pressure cooker. And it's really hard to do um, longer term projects in that context. And so what Fresno and what we're trying to do is, is bring a lot of the policy background that I have. We're bringing on a new team who's gonna be announced later this week um to try to contextualize more of the stories that people see and so you know i did a story last week on chinatown and how they're surviving COVID 19 um and i really wanted i mean it could have been just you know this is happening to this business and this is happening to this business but i wanted to embed that story in a much broader narrative which is that this is the first neighborhood in fresno it has been through a pandemic already. One of the businesses has actually survived the Spanish flu pandemic that's still there. And they've been through this series of, I mean, 
every possible catastrophe that was intentionally wrought and then they've been through you know forced japanese incarceration building a freeway in the middle of the neighborhood having people's property taken away from them urban renewal schemes that never came to fruition and they're still there and they're still fighting to preserve the culture and covid honestly is a blip on their radar um so i felt like that was an, a more important story to tell so to answer your question we're trying to bring those more context-heavy policy-forward stories to light that otherwise just it's there's just not enough journalists covering the valley to be honest so yeah yeah i mean it's 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 tricky because you're you know those mcclatchy people you know they have to appeal to their readers and what their readers want and what people want is what happened today you know right who got ran over on herndon you know mm -hmm. which which is important and we need to know who got ran over on Herndon. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe we need to also talk about why Herndon is so crazy as a street yeah. and how it got there. And that big picture that, you know, that kind of wide angle lens is, is you're right, it's hard to do when you got a deadline. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome that we have something like that. Cause I actually, I was, I was um, emailing with somebody at the, uh, at the Fresno Bee, I think maybe a year and a half ago. And I was asking him about something to do with the minutes at uh, one of the city hall meetings. And, and I was like, you know, is there somewhere else that I can get kind of more in depth stuff on like what's going on with the minutes at the city hall, at city council meetings. And he was like, well, yeah, I, I write a, I write an article about it, you know, pretty, pretty often. And, you know, it's like for him, it's like, it's like every two weeks or something. And like, it's just kind of a gloss, you know, cause no one, because not, you know, not a lot of people want to read the in-depth minutes of what people are actually saying. You know, they just want to read, right. oh, they argued about, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then, you know, into the meeting. But I want to know what they argued about. And so I think there needs to be an outlet for people. Because the, the truth is, is that I think, you know, good journalism will be supported by people in the community uh, right. if they see it being done well, ultimately. Uh, right. And, you know, if it's just clickbaity stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the people in the community that want good journalism are not going to be as excited to support it. I mean, I enjoy the Fresno Bee, but, you know, I, I read the Washington Post every day more. You know, why? Because I, you know, I, I want that more in-depth, complicated stuff. And it's just what it is. And well, so and the, um, the revenue models are in direct competition with each other at the Bee. You have advertising revenue which pushes uh, the more you know crime chasing you know sexy clickbaity stories mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily what keeps subscribers yeah. and so even their their own two revenue streams kind of compete against each other and it's really it's just it's a really frustrating thing and i know the journalists you know of course they would all they're all very talented super smart people that would love to go into more depth in, in their there's just a lot of constraints around them so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't blame anybody. It's, it's, right. it's a, it's, you know, their newspapers are businesses that are responding to their incentives, and right, you know, it's the incentives are not always good. So, right. um, I was going to talk about water, but we're much past an hour, and water would be a whole complicated. Issue. It's a very yeah. Um, but there, there is plenty more we can talk about um, in the future. Uh, and I hope that you get lots of work done. Uh, 
and I am very excited for you, for your team, and excited to hear about the things that are happening. And um, are you going to be working in the Fresno Bee's new offices down there? Yeah, I started there in February, and then three weeks later, we all got sent home. So terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know. It's okay. We're supposed to come back after Labor Day. We'll see if that happens. Okay. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I, your, your husband and I are both in the same boat with schools and it's complicated right now because, you know, there's, we're trying to plan for a fall semester that we don't even know really how it'll work if things stay as they are. And it's, yeah, everyone's kind of in a, we're all experiencing purgatory and what it feels like. And so it's so it's pretty wild. I don't envy everyone I know in education right now, really hard choices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it is pushing is pushing some things forward. I mean, in terms of getting everyone to become more digitally fluent. Um, So that may be a good thing in the long run, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's complicated. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for yeah. Talking. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you've made it this far in the podcast that you're listening to the outro, uh, that means you really value what we do at Fresno's Best Podcast. Uh, one of simple way to support us would be to just uh, hit that subscribe button so you make sure you get every episode and don't miss one. Also, uh, if you could rate us as well as give us a review that would really help uh, to bring in uh, more listeners to our podcast. So uh, those are the two challenges I have for you. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.